Well, hi. It's great to have you here this morning. Great to have all the kids here. And as they head out, we're really thankful for them and for all the volunteers and staff that work with our children. We're really delighted to have you here together this morning. So we're in a series called um, You Can Learn to Fight Right, right? And we have been learning how to fight and, uh, you know, unfortunately, we have to fight. I mean, life would be great if it wasn't for people, right? And because there's people in our lives, we tend to step on each other's toes. This is our third week, and um, I want to welcome those of you who are watching online. We're really glad that you're able to do that. My name is Ken, and I'm part of the elders team here at Grace. Also, um, so we have been, this is week three, right? And first week, we looked at the whole idea of um, the art of judging, yeah, the art of judging, because I don't know about you, but we have this tendency in ourselves, in our lives, to judge people, to label people, put some kind of a, a mark on them, uh, a descriptor, and we don't always do it well. And we talked about how the, the fact that um, when we talk about judging, sometimes we, we want to be careful we don't judge on the outward appearance, that we make sure we look at ourselves first, that we get all the facts, that we stay away from motives, because those are a little dangerous places for us to go, right? So the art of judging was what we talked about the first week, and it's part of a key piece on how to fight right. Then last week, we looked at the art of confronting, the art of confronting. And remember we said this, we said, healthy confrontation is a, yeah, let's try that one again. It is hard, but let's say it this way. You ready? Healthy confrontation is a, it's a gift. Yeah, healthy confrontation is a gift. So if I'm confronting someone, I need to think of it as a gift. I need to wrap it as a gift, present it as a gift, make sure it's the right size the right, for the right person. That's important for me to do, right? And if you wrap it in barbed wire and razor blades, that's not a good idea. So we wrap it up really pretty, we give it to that person, and then the person receiving the gift also needs to understand that it's a gift, right? This is designed for me, I need to receive this, this is a good thing for me, it's a gift that's being offered, and this can really change my life. So we've talked about the art of judging, which is part and parcel of how to fight right. Then we talked about the art of confronting, how to do that well. And this week, we're going to talk about the art of repenting. Because I want to say this thing to you, repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Can you say that with me? You ready? Repentance is a beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing. It's a put me in a place of blessing thing. It's a give me joy thing. It's to get it right again thing. It's a beautiful thing. If we can understand repentance, we should be going, yeah, God, thank you for coming up with that idea. That was a good one. Because when I mess up and I do mess up, I can now move into a position where I can experience that joy again, that oneness again, that harmony again that God longs for me to experience in my life. Now, there's a lot of pushback. When I say the idea that repentance is a beautiful thing, a lot of people are going, what? You know, really? There's a little pushback around this idea of repentance. And a lot of us will hold back. We don't want to repent at times. Ever been there? Sure you have. Um, that whole idea, I don't want to repent. I don't want to admit to, my, to what I've done wrong. And I think it can happen for a lot of reasons. I think it could be pride that stops us from doing that. Perhaps we've got anger inside of us that says, I'm not repenting. They need to repent first. Maybe there's selfishness feeling the other person was more wrong than we were, whatever the case might be, right? That can happen. But we'll hold off all the time on that. I don't know if you've held off on repenting. I sure have. Um, I, I love this story by Ken Davies. I don't know if you know him, but he, talks, he writes a story about his daughter and how he's trying to get her to repent, trying to get her to change, trying to get her actually to go to bed. Any of you had that struggle with your kids? 
So he writes in his book a little bit about this whole idea, and, and this little child reminds me of some of us. Here's what we go. Here's what we start. He says, go to bed, I told my daughter. She starts, yes, stalling. Daddy, does God talk to us? Yes, God talks to us, I said. Tracy, go to sleep. We'll discuss it in the morning. Being a fool, I imagined that would satisfy her. No, she said. We must discuss it now. God just spoke to me. Before I could frame an appropriate theological response, she added, he said I could get up. <laughs> Tracy to bed, I commanded. I need a drink of water, she shot back. The verbal sparring match intensified. You can't have a drink of water. Why? You'll wet the bed. I quit. How do they respond so quickly, he writes. Do they have a game plan? Do they pull random thoughts out of thin air? Is this the root of original sin? But I wasn't whipped yet. You didn't quit wetting the bed, I countered. You wet the bed just last night. She was quick. The cat did it. She said it without hesitation, without blinking. Maybe she's going to be a lawyer. I ignored the opportunity to laugh. Instead, I made my move to protect my authority. Don't tell me the cat did it, I bellowed. The spot on your bed was the size of a large pizza, and we only have a tiny little kitty. It wasn't our cat, she said. <laughs> she was a true professional. She was the best. Yes, she was going to be a lawyer. And she was shocked, shocked that I would not believe her. I held her by the shoulders. Look me in the eye, I said, and tell me the truth. Her bottom lip began to quiver. A huge tear welled up in her eyes. I'm sorry, Daddy, she sobbed. But a big cat took the screen off the window and jumped on my bed, and he wet my bed. <laughs> then he jumped back out the window. Sensing my skepticism, she continued, he put the screen back on after he left. That's why it's still there. I was speechless. He was a big cat, she appended during my keeping silent. I was coming to a slow boil. I can't believe you'd lie to me like this, I scolded. I learned that one from my father, and evidently such things lose their power between generations. I could hear her in her bedroom making tiny little peeping sounds. And then after a few more minutes of precious, lovely silence, a defiant little voice screeched from the bedroom, Daddy, I want water, and I want it now. The gauntlet had been thrown down. My parental authority was up for grabs. I had only one option. I called on the sacred and hallowed words of parents from across the reaches of time. If I hear one more word from you, I roared, I'll come in there and you're in big trouble. When you come, she said, bring me a glass of water. Now, Tracy's like a lot of us, right? I mean, we hang on to that rebellion. We hang on to that disobedience. We aren't going to repent. We're not going to back off. Whatever the reasons might be, that's a tendency in all of us to do that. And I look into Scripture, and I see some interesting accounts of this inability, this lack of desire to repent. I mean, I see it in the life of Cain with his brother Abel. It's interesting because he's angry with the offering that Abel gave that God speaks to him and says, there's a lion at the door about to devour you. Watch it. Watch out. But he goes and lets the lion do it and kills his brother. Or I think of King David who commits adultery with Bathsheba. Um, some would argue that he actually rapes her. And yet he, he hides the thing, right? And then has her husband set up to die. What's going on? A lack of repentance in his life. 
And we see this over and over again in Scripture where there are these examples of men and women who are fail to repent for their rebellion. And it's like a spiritual cancer that, that separates us from God and separates us from people. It's like an albatross that hangs over our heads when we fail to repent, when we fail to make things right. I shared a little bit with you back on December 31st in a, series, in a little talk called No Regrets about a situation that happened in my own life when I was in grade 8. We lived in northern Ontario and I was hanging out with a bunch of kids who liked to break and enter and so I joined them on one occasion and we broke into a home. It was winter time and apparently the snowbirds had headed down to Florida. They had a lovely home and we went through the home um, and then one day there was a police car that pulled into our driveway and the police officer, big burly guy, you know, dark outfit on and all the badges and a belt with all kinds of things on the belt, including the biggest gun I'd ever seen in my life. And he came into our home and sat around the kitchen table. And there was my mom with her mouth wide open, wondering, what's this police officer doing asking my son these questions? And I remember my dad sitting there in his big, you know, worn out slippers and big heavy sweater, steely eyed looking at me as the police officer asked me questions like, were you involved in this? And uh, like a mafia lord, I said to him, nope, not me, must have been somebody else, and kept lying the whole way through. And after the officer left, my parents would, you know, were interrogating me as well, and I said the very same thing, nope, not me, it wasn't me. You know what it feels like when you know you've lied, when you know you've rebelled and it weighs on you? And you know like 99% sure you're going to get caught no matter what happens? Like it's, you, you know it's going to happen and it just kind of lays on you, like jumping up and down on your back by like a 400-pound gorilla is there, Right? And a few weeks later, I get called to the principal's office along with the rest of us in our little gang. There was another burly police officer, and at that particular moment, I repented. And I remember, I remember the moment of joy that I felt when I repented. Um, I, re, I, re, I was thinking about that, the hymn that I learned in, 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 in church. Rolled away, rolled away, rolled away, every burden of my heart rolled away. I just felt that joy at that particular moment. I got home, and the worst was yet to come, my dad... Um, uh, met me, <laughs> the police had been there before and shared with them the truth and uh, when I got home he did this thing he called the, the rod, of under rod of correction to the seat of understanding, I don't know if you know what that means <laughs> but that's how he would describe it, I got a walloping and apparently I was told I was going to do the dishes for the, for the rest of my life by myself, which of course I got off that because of good behavior and the recognition, there's no way they could make me do the dishes for the rest of my life, right? Oh boy, does it feel good to get things right. And perhaps even as we're thinking this morning of maybe of your own life, you're saying, how am I doing in this area? What about me? Repentance means to turn around. It includes things like coming clean, and going in a different direction, a feeling sorrow for what I've done, making amends. And when we do that, repentance is a beautiful thing. Now, it involves more than those things, as you'll see in a minute. We may need to repair things. There may be scars that we can't repair. There may be damage that's ongoing for the rest of our lives because of it, because of what we've done. But repentance is critical in that whole deal, isn't it? I want to read to you a passage from, uh, first, from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And again, this is a passage that I read way back on December 31st. But I want to read it to you from the New Living Translation. This is the Apostle Paul. He's confronted the church at Corinth. And they have responded to his confronting in repentance. 
So I want to read to you what he says here to them as he writes this letter. He says, I'm not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful for you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. That was what brought Paul joy. They repented. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. It results in death. And you think of death as separation. It results in separation from God. It results in separation from people. Maybe even there's a little bit of dissonance in our own spirit as well. So what he's saying to us here is that repentance is really, really important. Healthy confrontation is important. And, and maybe and, and as a result of that, hopefully that person will repent. Hopefully that's part and parcel of what can happen when that takes place. But let me remind you what he says again. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So there's repentance, and in the midst of repentance, there's this thing called sorrow. And sorrow is a trigger, a personal trigger toward repentance. But we can get stuck there, or we can have a wrong kind of sorrow that doesn't enable us to repent in a healthy way, that doesn't allow us to repent in the way that God would be calling us to. And that's really important for us to understand. In fact, when I, what I want to talk about this morning is when we think of repentance, we need to think about two areas, the action of repentance and the motivation behind repentance. We need to think of two areas when we talk about repentance. The action itself, what are the components, the various parts of repentance. But secondly, and this is really important, we need to talk about the motivation behind why we repent because it is huge. Now, this is a little heavy this morning. I'm going to go through a lot of stuff. But you guys are so bright and so good-looking and so gull, I mean so open to things, to hear things. And I know that's true of you. I've been here. I've sensed it. So I know you're going to be able to hang in there, right? Actually, it's not too much. But I, but I just want to remind you of this truth. Repentance is a beautiful thing, right? So let's understand repentance so that we can live in a way that honors God. Now, there's six steps that I want to talk about in terms of the action, action piece and these come from scripture, they come from a number of places, the story, the, the par parable of the prodigal son, they come from Psalm 51, Psalm 32, where David is responding to the sin that he's, he's caused as after Nathan confronts him. They come out of didactic passages, teaching passages in scripture as well. And um, so let, let me just show you six, godly repentance includes six actions. I'm going to go through this fairly, fairly quickly, and I think you'll understand clearly what's going on here. Here's the action. Number one, you've got to name it right? You got to name it. Call it what it is, okay? I lied. I stole. I committed adultery. I gossiped. I'm angry, and I let it get out of control. I do not keep a promise. Make sure you name it. Let's not play around. If you're going to confess sin, you need to be able to name it, identify it. That's clearly one of the things that needs to happen. Secondly, you need to own it. Take responsibility, no excuses, no playing the blame game about this. When you're going to repent, you need to be clear that you did it. I'm going to own it right now. Listen, there are lots of reasons why you did what you did, but there are no excuses for what you did, okay? Lots of reasons, no excuses. 
make sure that you own it, right? Be a grown-up. Own it. It was my fault. I chose to act that way. I take responsibility. That's critical for repentance. Number three, grieve it. Be saddened by what you've done. This is the sorrow piece. Realize that what happened has hurt. Hurt me, hurt God, hurt someone else. And perhaps realize that I can't take it back. And we need to be sorry for what we've done. And I think that's a critical point in the process of repentance. Now, you may cry, you may not cry. You may feel it in a way that someone else may not feel it. But we need to understand, okay? Not looking for a grieving spot that we get hung up here. We want to move beyond that. And here's the next piece, confess it. That means I admit it to those I've hurt. I put it into words and I state it clearly, including God. State what you've done and how sorry you are that you've done it. To confess is to agree, okay? It's to agree that what you have done is wrong. And basically what we're doing when we confess is we're saying the same thing about our sin that God says about it. So we're coming in alignment with God about the thing that we've done that we need to repent of, right? That's so important. Next, quit it. Can you say that with me? You ready? Quit it. Quit it. Now, if, if you're genuinely repenting, what you're longing to do is not do that again. I don't want to lie again. I don't want to steal again. I don't want to gossip again. That's a desire that you have. So part of the step is to quit it. Now, none of us is perfect, right? And that can be a struggle sometimes because you go back to God and go, oh boy, here I am again. This is like the 10th time on this one. I'm sorry, God. But if you don't have the desire to quit it, if that's not a piece of the puzzle, then we've got a problem. It's not the whole picture of repentance then. So while it may be true that I'm also not perfect and may still drift into this direction, I have a desire in my heart to make sure that I, this does not become an ongoing thing in my life. Um, if you continue to follow the same pattern of behavior without any desire or attempt to change the direction of your life, then you've not really embraced repentance like you should have. And that may be where we need to bring someone else into the conversation to help us to quit it. And then finally, mend it. Mend it. Repair the damage if you can. Okay? Sometimes, a lot of times, there's nothing that you can do, but we need to try our best to mend it. There's an old story of a, a, a person who had struggled with gossip. And so he, this guy went to the town wise guy and sat down with him, an older man, um, and sat down with him on his front porch and said to him, I've been struggling with gossip, and I know I've hurt a lot of people. I'm trying to mend it. What should, you, what should I do? And the wise old man says, I want you to take a bag of feathers, and I want you to go to the, door, the front porch of everyone who you talk to and put the feather there, and when you're done, I want you to come back and see me. So the man goes, puts all the feathers out, comes back the next day to see the old man, and the old man says to him, and he says to the old man, what do you want me to do now? He says, I want you to go back and collect all the feathers. He says, well, I can't. It was windy out last night. And he says, yeah, that's right. Sometimes we can't mend what we do to hurt others. So this should be a cause for us to really want, therefore, to quit it. Name it, own it, grieve it, confess it, quit it, mend it. That's the actions of repentance. When we think of repentance, we need to think of the actions. But we also need to think of the motivations, the motivations. Now, sometimes the reason that we repent 
is because we got caught. It's the I got caught repentance, right? I wouldn't have repented if I didn't get caught, but now that I'm caught, I'm going to repent. That was me back in grade eight, right? That can be one of the reasons that we repent, not the best motivation. There's the advantage repentance confession, which means I'm, I, if, I, if I confess this, people are going to be warm toward me. If I confess this, I'm going to get this right. I'm going to get that right. If I confess this, I'm going to gain merit or please a person or get approval. And that's the reason we do it. Not a good reason. Not a good reason. There's moral repentance, which is people who have moral absolutes and say repentance is something I, I, I need to do. That's the only reason I'm doing it. Again, not good enough. Then there's what we call religious repentance, which is fear-based. And religious repentance is religion is because religion is our attempt to please God or get right to God. If I follow rules and rituals and regulations, maybe I'll get right with God, and that's why we repent. And that's not a good reason to repent either. There's what we're going to call gospel repentance. Gospel repentance is love-based. And because I'm accepted by God and in a relationship with Him, that's why I repent. This is the kind of repentance that I want to talk to us about for the next little stretch here. And I want to compare gospel repentance with religious repentance because many of us in this room are followers of Jesus, and we have a tendency to move toward religious repentance instead of gospel repentance. Now, I'm getting this idea, this teaching from a guy named Tim Keller, who's a brilliant guy, an awesome guy, just went home to be with the Lord last year. But Tim Keller talks about this, and I'm going to share with you some of his insights because I think they can be so helpful for us. Let me just say this. Many people know the relief of repentance. Believers know the joy of repentance. Maybe a better way to put it is this. Believers should know the joy of repentance, right? All of us will know the relief of repentance. When you're a little child or you're older and you get it right and the relationship gets back to face to face. But Christians should know something even bigger than that. We should know something, we should experience something beyond that. And that's a certain kind of joy that repentance can enable in our lives. So what I want to do here, again, I'm going to compare religious repentance with gospel repentance. Religious repentance, all of the things I'm going to do, these born out of fear, I want to please God, with gospel repentance, which is all about love, okay? So you ready for this? Let's see. As we walk through this together, I think this is really good stuff. Sorrow over sin. What is the difference between a religious person and their sorrow over sin and a gospel person and their sorrow over sin? A religious person says, I'm sorry for how my sin affects me, okay? How my sin affects me. Whereas a gospel repentance, I'm sorry for how my sin displeases and dishonors God. So when you're in a relationship with God and you sin as a follower of his, yes, it affects you. But more than that, you know it affects God. It hurts God, hurts my relationship with God. That's not something that I want to have happen. That's a motivation. Here's the next one. The effects of my sin. A religious person, I do not hate the sin for itself, but only as it affects me, okay? I don't hate the sin for me because it's sin, but how it's affecting me right now, how it's weighing on me right now, whereas gospel effects of my sin is seen this way. I hate the sin for what it is, how it affects me and others and the cost God had to pay to rescue me from its power over me. So a person who's, who knows that God loves them, is in a right relationship with God, sees the effects of their sin on themselves, on others, and the cost, they're reminded of the cost that had to be paid through Jesus on the cross 
for the sin that they've been committed. They've just committed. You can see the, the difference there and the power that happens as a result of that. How about the basis for my repentance? Why do I repent? Why does a religious person repent? Religious repentance is fear-based. It's driven by my fear of the consequences to me of my sin. It's driven by that fear. It may be the fear that the natural consequences of my sin, or it may be the fear that they have that God's going to present them with some consequences. And so that becomes the driving force, the basis for the, why do I repent? Because I'm afraid of the consequences. But look at a gospel person. Gospel repentance is love-based. It's driven by my relationship with God. It's all about my relationship with God. Let's talk about consequences. Religion. It's fear-based. Repentance makes me hate myself. Why would I hate myself? Because I did it again. I blew it again. Look what I've done. I can't make it. I can't cut it. I can't seem to get all the rules right. I can't seem to... I can't seem to and by the way, the natural tendency for those of us who are followers of Jesus and understand God's grace is to default into this direction. So that in our minds, that's how we might be thinking when if I asked you deliberately, you would say, no, 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 no. I believe that God loves me. But the tendency is for me to hate myself, to beat up myself, to push down on myself. That's how I respond to the consequences. Whereas a gospel person, joy-based repentance makes me hate the sin, not me. It doesn't make me hate me. It makes me hate the sin because I understand what God has done for me. Okay? Tracking with me on that? Look at this. The goal for repentance. Here, this is really fascinating. I repent to keep God happy so he will continue to bless me and answer my prayers. Have you ever found yourself thinking that way? If I don't repent, God's not going to answer. If I don't repent, this is what's going to happen. If I don't repent, here's the consequences. And I understand that, but you know what? That's wrong for those of us who are followers of Jesus. That's a bad motivation to repenting. I'm only repenting for me then, right? Here's what the gospel says. I repent to tap into the joy of my union with Christ, to weaken my impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart. Isn't that beautiful? I repent. Why do I repent? Because I want the joy back that comes from my relationship with God. And because of that relationship with God, I'm hoping and longing for it to weaken my impulse to do anything else that would violate him. So this relationship that I have with God is the driving force in my repentance. How about forgiveness? The approach to forgiveness. Religion, I try to earn my forgiveness through my repentance. You ever done that? I can remember so many times when I would try and dredge up tears sound more sorry in my prayer to God, hoping that he would forgive me. God, have you forgiven me yet? Do I need to pray one more time? Do I need to be more emphatic? What do I need to do to get that to happen? And a religious person is repenting to be in that posture. But look at the gospel. I receive forgiveness earned by whom? Jesus, okay? I receive forgiveness earned by Jesus. It would be unjust for God to ever deny me forgiveness because Jesus earned my acceptance through his life and death for me. Do you believe that? It would be wrong for me. It would be wrong for me to believe that I get it by somehow earning this when Jesus did it all for me. And this is the wonderful beauty of Jesus and the cross. My forgiveness is all taken care of. It's earned by Jesus and not by me. And that's a wonderful thing that allows me in the context of repentance to go, Wow, look what you've done. Already forgiven. Already taken care of. 
Let's talk about the place of hope and repentance. For a religious person, when my hope is in my moral goodness, it's difficult for me to repent. It infers that I'm far from God. So if I'm going to repent, then it tells me if I'm religious, I'm far from God. And so the tendency will be for me not want to repent because I'm just reinforcing this feeling I have that I'm far from God. But look at the gospel. Because my hope is in Jesus' righteousness, I do not find it traumatic to admit my weaknesses and my failures. This is an interesting teaching here. I, I, we could, I wish we could have time to just hang around this one alone. There is a sense in which, and Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, had on there a line, I'm going to paraphrase it, that the life of the follower of Jesus is a life of repentance. That it's a constant pattern of repenting, of repenting of who, of, of, because I'm celebrating the wonder of what's taken place through Jesus' righteousness in my life. It's not traumatic for me to mention my, my, my failures. I want to do it right away because of what he's done for me. So I live my life that way. I'm constantly in that posture. I'm constantly prone to repenting. This is so important. How security drives my repentance. For a religious person, my relational security is found in my personal goodness, right? Religious person, I'm going to follow all these rites and rituals. My relational unit security is found in my personal goodness. So repentance is an enemy that tells me I'm not good enough. Consequently, I avoid it. Whereas in the gospel, my relationship security, my relational security with God is found in Jesus. So repentance is a posture I hold because it brings joy in my walk with God. I know that he's, I'm already forgiven. I know that he's paid for it. I know I'm in a relationship with him. I know he loves me. There's a joyful experience I have. Wow, that's so wonderful for me to live through that. My perspective on repentance. There is bitterness in repentance if I'm religious because I find myself either constantly denying my sins and flaws, and so I push aside the need to repent, or I am constantly being reminded of how I fail to be good enough. You fail to be good enough. And if you have that feeling as a follower of Jesus, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. You know what? You're right, you're not. Jesus is good enough. And you have him, and therefore, you're a loved child of God. You're his daughter, you're his son, and we need to remember that. Here's what the gospel says. There is a sweetness in repentance because the more I see my flaws and sins, the more precious and electrifying and amazing is the grace of God. Wow, that's a perspective, isn't it? There's a sweetness in repentance because the more I see my flaws and sins, the more precious and electrifying and amazing is the grace of God. I love the name of our church, don't you? I think it's an awesome name. Guess what? Repentance is a beautiful thing. It really is. Because it's a declaration of who I am. It's a declaration of my relationship with God. It's a declaration of who I am in Him. And yes, I mess up, but His righteousness is bigger and better. It's greater than all my sin. And I'm just going to live in that truth. So believers are the best repenters on the planet. At least we better be, right? We should be the best. Are we going to mess up? Yes, but we can, we can know this wonderful truth that we have a Savior who took it all on the cross for us. And that's just such a beautiful thing to remember and to know. We all sin, we all mess up, we all hurt others, we all therefore need to exercise repentance. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, whether it's online or here in the room, you know who you have in Christ, what you have in Christ, and you need to rest in that and understand what that means in terms of your relationship to Him.
I hope you get that. I hope you live in it. I hope you do. I know it's work, but it's important that we do. The default position, as I mentioned, is to be religious and to then believe that somehow I have to earn this or that my, I, I, I don't match up, and that's not the way to live. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, this is a wonderful truth that repentance brings to us today, that God's grace is greater than all our sin, that we're in a right relationship with him when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Instead of trusting in yourself or trusting in religion or trusting in whatever it may be that you're trusting in, you need to put your whole life and trust in him as your sin forgiver and your life leader, and he then is the one who, in his love for you, will respond to help you become more and more like Jesus in your life. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you so much for Jesus and for what he did for us on the cross. I know personally that I have a tendency to sneak back into that religious context and to feel like I somehow have to earn things with you, that my repentance is a kind of a, a doorway to a right relationship. And I understand that my repentance is something that is part and parcel of what it means as a response to all that you've done for us, all that you've done for me. And I pray for every one of us in this room, Lord. If we've got maybe the image of someone on our mind or a situation that's come to us this morning, and we've been holding off repenting, I pray, Lord, that we might make that move. If there's a break in our relationship with someone else, and we maybe have been confronted by it, and now we need to respond by repenting, or if we haven't been confronted by it, but need to repent, I pray, Lord, that we would move in that direction, that you'd help us to make that happen. If there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus, man, we'd love to talk to them about that. We'd love to help them take whatever, you know, the next steps to put their faith and hope in him as they cry out to him. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.